You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. All right, listeners, here we go. Renegade Economist, episode 533. You're with Carl Fitzgerald here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves, and it is time for an overview show. One of those shows where I uh, pick up uh, various threads from the last month or so with a few hot topics in the news at the moment and try and make sense of this maddening world. Is there another show where you can tie together inequality, population growth, transportation funding, nimbyism, true cost economics, economic insecurities, and housing affordability? Of course there is, running inside your mind each and every week as slowly these uh, principles of monopoly rents seep into your everyday thinking as you're walking around you are reading the news too you are seeing the vacant lots you are seeing those who get the rezoning making millions of dollars in their sleep through that incredible golden pen tick well we're recording today from the middle of royal park overlooking the city as uh and just touch upon that interview I did a few weeks ago with Michael West on depreciated optimized replacement costs, the dork system that is rigging our energy and infrastructure games. Uh, Australia is the only place in the world where companies can depreciate at an optimized rate. They can basically say, look, despite the fact that ratepayers and and toll payers have already paid for the Sydney Harbour Bridge, we're going to uh, just depreciate it as if we need to replace the whole thing again at an optimised rate, which of course uh, generally includes extravagant valuations, incorporating surrounding land to uh, accentuate the value of, uh, of the asset. That was fantastic to have another high-profile guest here on The Renegade Economist, Michael West, uh, who you've read about for many years in the Fairfax Press and now on michaelwest.com.au. And one of the big issues uh, that we didn't get time to talk about then uh, was, of course, the the uh, gold plating of our poles and wires, where uh, government has this ridiculous incentive of giving power distribution companies a 10% guaranteed return on investment to uh, any new poles and wires that go on that get developed so that uh, we can ostensibly deal with the four days of extreme heat we have each year with these ridiculous air conditioners that uh, in past times we didn't have enough power to deal with. But here we are in Victoria at the end of our long hot summer and uh, the biggest problem we have as the Australia Institute continues to point out is that these rusty old coal fire power plants keep on uh, breaking down and uh, that's where the uh, the big issue is these days so we need more renewable energy to come on board. I saw somewhere recently that uh, there's a new loophole that's opened up for uh, uh, energy distribution companies where they're allowed to claim an efficiency dividend by removing certain poles and wires uh, that need replacing. 
uh, by by claiming that uh, it's more efficient to do them all in at once. So uh, that's helping write off their maintenance costs, boosting up their uh, gross profits that then the depreciation writes off. Basically uh, a game of accounting trickery to ensure that there's plenty of money for CEOs and managers to be paid, uh, linesmen even at 150 grand a year uh, in some cases with lots of overtime and all that gets slapped onto our bill. But yes, it's been probably three or four weeks since that interview with Michael West and I still haven't been to the Victorian government's energy comparison website crazy aren't I? I've got to get onto that so uh, we can switch to uh, a company that doesn't increase their tariffs by uh, 28 to 37 percent as uh, Red Energy supposedly one of the more uh, greener type uh, power providers has done recently. We dare suspect that uh, that jacking up of prices though is due to the Singaporean owned power core company who runs the poles and wires that distributes the power way out to us out in Drummond. So the other element to that Michael West interview I wanted to reiterate was that uh, we talked about the incredible West Connects uh, highway, tollway development there, $16.8 billion, a whole cloud of secrecy involved. And I asked Michael about how Malcolm Turnbull's uh, dream of uh, recapturing some of the rising values from the on-off ramps uh, what was playing out up there and dare I say it Michael but it was a little sad you didn't know about the concept of land value capture just like another one of Australia's leading investigative journalists Neil Chenoweth didn't really draw the dots way back when Eddie O'Bead was uh, making money out of uh, having his uh, land rezoned for mining he was uh, doctoring the leases at Circular Quay where his family company owned uh, the leaseholds there, jacking up the prices there uh, using uh, some dodgy valuation practices. And then he was also leaning on uh, Sydney Water to jack up their prices to support some of the water rights he owned as well, I think. So uh, all of those uh, forms of rent-seeking Uh, revolve around what's known as unearned income or monopoly rents and that is the dot that ties together so much corruption and when it comes to West Connects uh, what I want to know what I'd love investigative journalists to be looking at is whether the directors of uh, the Sydney Motorways Corporation have bought land through some sort of shelf companies near the on-off ramps of uh, this giant West Connects development Who's making the decisions on where those on-off ramps are? Uh, Has WestConnex got the government uh, round their little finger? As uh, Michael West described, Goldman Sachs and Macquarie Bank are all over uh, that big infrastructure development. So no doubt with their lobbying prowess, they'll be uh, directing those on-off ramps to... uh, locations where they perhaps own large land developments or maybe a connection through the game of mates uh, is providing that so uh, yeah always uh, a challenge uh, to know about these things when uh, your standard neoclassical economics degree 
ignores the role of land, ignores the role of monopoly rents, and focuses uh, everyone's minds on this uh, minute battle between labour and capital, which is really quite minor on the scale of things when you consider that uh, Australia's land values are more than triple the value of the Australian Stock Exchange. If we don't get the land game right, then everything else struggles. A couple of weeks ago, we had Ed Dodson on, and we were talking about the accelerated concentration of big business and how these mergers and acquisitions, these uh, tech sector buy-ups that are going on uh, as Google and Amazon and Facebook snap up all of their competitors and uh, lock up any patents that may lead to major competition, how that's uh, affecting our economic growth, how's that, that affecting the entrepreneurial spirits of the everyday person? And it's really when you look at the tech sector and see what uh, those big tech companies are up to, it must be so disheartening for youngsters who have this belief that uh, they can make a difference to the world through technology, through understanding how to code. And instead of having a long-term effect, perhaps the best they can hope for is to develop a product that gets bought out by Apple, gets bought out by Facebook. Peter Thiel, one of Silicon Valley's uh, most successful types, a co-founder of PayPal with Elon Musk, uh, a libertarian, billionaire, well, Yahoo.com summed him up as billionaire venture capitalist and entrepreneur. Peter Thiel believes the high cost of living is stifling entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley. And he says... One thing I've been thinking about as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley is the vast majority of the capital I give to the companies is just going to landlords. It's going to commercial real estate and even more to urban slumlords of one sort or another. And that's an odd thing to be doing as a venture capitalist. That's so disproportionate, he said at an event hosted by the Economic Club of New York. He then went on to explain that when a one-bedroom apartment goes to $2,000 in San Francisco versus a one-bedroom in Austin, Texas, for $1,000, that suggests San Francisco is a better place to live. However, when the rent on that one-bedroom in San Francisco reaches $4,000 a week, perhaps it's time to be open to other areas. So, uh, of great interest to see that... uh, Someone such as Peter Thiel is talking about this. He's someone who has advocated for the need for land value tax to help redistribute the income needed for a universal basic income, which uh, Juanita McLaren touched upon in last week's International Women's Day takeover. So uh, that's important, just like the first homeowner's grant, if everyone gets... $7,000, $15,000, $14,000 a year in uh, free money. Well, we're all going to use that to bid up the value of location, location. So it's the landlords who take all the gain. And that's what Peter Thiel's talking about. All these young upstarts uh, raising millions of dollars through initial coin offerings in the Bitcoin community. Well, 
sounds funky, but uh, the the landowners of San Francisco are cleaning up, and they're the ones who are winning. But uh, back to this economies of scale story with Ed Dodson. There was one issue there I was hoping we'd get to. We didn't quite uh, make it, but it was uh, the fact that so many of the retail agglomerations, and through that uh, you can even see McDonald's, one of the world's biggest landowners, uh, but companies like Bunnings, Australia's huge hardware chain store, they own lots of land. They have huge, huge car parks. So under the system we advocate for here on the Renegade Economists, uh, the land tax system would see someone, uh, a Bunnings type store pay more in land tax than a smaller Mitre 10 type store or your local hardware. So uh, from that, the local hardware would have some sort of economic uh, uh, rebalancing to the incredible economies of scale of being able to buy 100,000 widgets at once that Bunnings can. So uh, that's the sort of thinking we need to try and undo this incredible consolidation that's going on. It's uh, a massive issue and something I think in time we're going to be talking about the need for antitrust regulation here in Australia and around the world because uh, the big boys are getting a little too big for themselves as we've seen uh, this week with the, the Facebook wrought Cambridge Analytica hacking 50 million Americans data and uh, using that to whisper in their ears uh, along the sort of with memes that would resonate according to their online preferences. So that's not the sort of democratic outcome we need and another example of why government needs to be stronger, needs to find a way to employ the smartest people that can be ahead of the curve rather than running so far behind it in this new technologically advanced world. Is that going to be possible? You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, this week broadcasting from under a tree in Royal Park, Melbourne, overlooking this uh, booming skyline. can only see uh, four or five cranes in the air, not like the usual 17 or 18. What will that mean for Melbourne's housing affordability? Well, the housing affordability news cycle continues to advocate for this supply-side forever mantra. The latest uh, group, uh, our friends at the Grattan Institute, saying that planning really is the big lever. They also uh, touched upon migration, which was good to see. Things are just too crazy in Australia, aren't they, with uh, 370,000 plus people and nearly half of them coming to Melbourne does wonders for property investors, of course. Uh, the HIA was very quick out uh, to write a press release slating this population issue that the Grattan Institute had raised and Q&A discussed and said, look, uh, we can't touch migration. And I know with some of my uh, 
discussions with developers. That's the thing they're most worried about is government's just going to turn the switch off all of a sudden. Will it require Pauline Hanson and the radical right to claim more parliamentary seats before that happens? But I hope not. I hope not. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk in this section of the show about the, the paradox of nimbyism and how outdated some on the progressive left are in terms of being able to deal with this new commodification of real estate and what it means for our cities. What I mean by there is uh, the news that uh, America's, one of America's oldest and most prestigious environmental organizations, the Sierra Club, the New York Times uh, had a piece in the AFR about Californians argue the density versus sprawl issue. And uh, Californian uh, politicians have proposed that they do similar to what uh, Melbourne has done by accelerating the planning approval process around transport hubs to increase density because those who uh, live in more dense communities, uh, because it's been widely recognised that transportation accounts for one-third of the US's carbon dioxide emissions. We've talked about before some Melbourne University studies comparing seven-star homes on the sprawl versus zero-star apartment blocks in the city And it was a similar thing. Those who lived in the zero-star apartment blocks uh, had a lower carbon footprint than those, like myself, driving into town. So here we have uh, the Sierra Club objecting to this densification due to their concerns about the changing character of some of these classic communities where lefty liberal types in California have uh, set up base. So uh, Ethan Elkind uh, wrote quite a good blog post on this and he quotes Berkeley Law releasing a report showing that annual reductions of 1.79 million metric tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions compared to the business as usual scenario which is the equivalent of taking 378,000 cars off the road and almost 15% of the emissions reductions needed to reach the state's targets from statewide land use changes. But the problem with changing property rights like that is that these are generational changes with the effects that will be felt for years to come of uh, gridlock, extra crowdedness and associated demographic changes that uh, people set in their ways just really don't like. So the NIMBY movement of saying enough is enough uh, is sort of trapped in this, this bind between supporting refugees but being anti-population growth, between wanting a cleaner, greener world but protecting their own backyard from the needed changes. And this is what drives so much of the right wing, just absolutely batty, is trying to find the, the, the balance between those two extremes. One of the other big uh, points behind this new Californian bill is just how expensive it is to live there. Uh, as per the Peter Thiel quote, 
earlier. And so uh, we just have to wonder, is supply going to deliver the goods? With the post-GFC era having strongly endorsed the commodification of real estate alongside the bailing out of the banksters, uh, it's hard to see that these gateway cities, these global cities such as LA, San Fran, Melbourne, Sydney, Hong Kong, London and others are ever going to be able to really wind back the intensity of both people wanting to move to world's most livable cities like ours in Melbourne or trying to buy in and speculate to protect their futures because they know governments are running out of money fast and there ain't going to be no pension in another 20 odd years. Well, the supply side story continues with breathless articles like a 482 hectare half developed estate in Wyndham Vale. Looks like uh, it's going to be sold for $160 million, bought in 1964 for £82,000. Massive, massive uh, mark up there. And uh, we really need a rezoning windfall gains tax in place to capture some of that money to fund the, the trains out to those areas. So we don't need to drive. So it's cheaper for me to uh, catch the train than it being more expensive than driving. Just ridiculous. So uh, there's another example of uh, Peter Bozzo's Lotus Living bought a property in the south uh, east of uh, Melbourne. Chinese developers have offered around $500 million for, uh, for this site that he bought in 1994 when it was zoned rural. So that's where the NIMBYs want people to live, out on the sprawl, essentially. Basically, with the Grattan Institute saying, look, planning is the key, it was great to see in uh, the conversation a fantastic article called Affordable Housing Policy Failure Still Being Fueled by Flawed Analysis. And it had sort of the dream team of the planning industry out of uh, uh, New South Wales when Nicole Garan, Bill Randolph, Peter Phibbs, Rachel Ong and Stephen Rowley, a couple of WA types there. And uh, I'm just going to read a few bits here because they talk about the fallacies of filtering. One of the great hopes underpinning the supply cliche is that new housing stock improves affordability even if these homes are not affordable for lower income groups. This faith is based on a theory called filtering whereby older houses move down to the affordable end of the market over time. The empirical data on filtering is thin. Indeed, the academic literature has historically cast doubt on the theory. However, some commentators continue to claim that American rental housing markets provide evidence that filtering can occur in practice. As I switch the page, many of you will be thinking, ah, yeah, those older homes in good locations, that's what uh, the negative gearers snap up, don't they? Get it rezoned and... Um, flip the property before even building. Okay, back to the article. But whatever might happen in the US, in Australia, there's still no evidence to suggest new housing supplies filtered across the housing stock to expand affordable housing opportunities for low-income Australians, or that it will do anytime soon. Prominent economists continue to produce data that suggests the potential impact of new supply on price is minimal. The shortage of affordable housing opportunities for low-income households in Australia remains persistent, 
and the evidence indicates that low-income working households in our cities consistently face housing costs well above accepted affordability levels regardless of the quality of housing they live in. Okay, people, I'm getting to the key point. And this is the next subheading, sustaining supply in a cooling market. Some commentators cite cooling house prices as evidence that the supply response is taking effect. Whether or not that is so, above and beyond demand supply side factors like higher interest rates for investor loans, expect the pipeline to start slowing down. Private sector development is driven by profit and risk and, as we have seen over many years, is characterised by speculative booms and busts. Developers <coughs> can turn off the new supply taps much more quickly than they can turn it on. Falling prices, weak consumer sentiment and economic uncertainty mean many developers will not follow through on building approvals until the market recovers. This means that high levels of supply are rarely sustained. Recent housing data in WA proves a case in point. WA recorded rising completions in 2014, 15 and 16, but 2017 completion figures are expected to show a drop of around a third as prices have shaded off since the end of the mining boom. This is where my eight-year-old daughter, Jamari, would go, dun-dun-dun! Put simply, the market on its own will never solve Australia's housing affordability problem. Expecting developers to keep building in order to reduce housing prices is pure fantasy. Pure fantasy. Wow, that summed it up beautifully, didn't it, people? That's what we're talking about. Developers will not continue releasing property to the market as prices are falling. They've crunched the supply in WA and uh, here we are in Victoria, record rezonings and any time I see house prices starting to drop, these supply levels get crunched. I'm looking for an economist with an econometric background to help me uh, work out some of the correlations in that field. If that sounds like you, please get in touch at renegades at earthsharing.org.au. And my oh my, if you are a campaigner, need work, zap me a line. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening to the background rumblings of Royal Park as uh, we sneak into these issues. A balanced approach, uh, winding back population growth, winding back the speculative incentives, developing infrastructure financing model so we can have super fast trains out on the sprawl bringing people in having a land tax system in place that incentivizes people to move out of the city where land prices are lower and into regional towns that are dying as the demographic change continues that's the sort of future i'm looking forward to thanks for joining us here on the 3cr airwaves 